I think we can be very convinced that James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, that they shared the mother, Mary. And we are also sure that James came to trust Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior after Jesus' resurrection. James became, in time, the lead pastor of the first church in Jerusalem and a highly revered leader in the early church. He addresses this general letter to Jewish believers living outside of Israel. So picture him in Jerusalem, the lead pastor of the first Christian church, and he's writing to Israelites, the Jewish believers particularly, who have gone out into the ancient Greco-Roman world particularly, and perhaps even beyond, who would read this letter from this revered leader. This is probably the earliest New Testament document written around the time of the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about events earlier, but James, the first one that was written in the New Testament. And so as would be expected, it lacks much of the theological nuance and the development that we find in New Testament books, particularly books that emerge out of the Gentile mission. If you think back on Galatians, for instance, that we've looked at not long ago, think of the conversation there of how the Gentiles relate to the law of God. What is the place of the law in the life of the believer? You're not going to find that here in the book of James. Or think to the book of Colossians. There we have a depth of Christology that is rich and full and developed. That's not here in the book of James. It's an early book. In fact, in 2.2, he even refers, it's in the Greek, not the English, but he even refers to their gatherings in synagogues. So these are Jews living outside of the land who have trusted Christ as Messiah. He didn't die all that long ago. They haven't put together all of the development theologically of how the Gentiles relate to the mission. And he writes, as we find here in verse 1, to these tribes the twelve tribes of the dispersion. So let's just say right up front, it's kind of difficult for us to read this book and to not read it as Gentiles. It's difficult to read this book and not to relate as Gentiles who have the benefit of the Apostle Paul to help us out. We must simply recognize, though, that James reflects a less developed theology. On the one hand, we don't want to read Paul into every line of the book of James as such. On the other hand, it's foolish to pretend we don't have later revelation. We do. And so in a sense, the way we read the Old Testament, we always see it in light of the fact that Christ has come. We don't ignore that fact as we try to understand the Old Testament. In like like manner, we're going to understand James somewhat in the light of later revelation. But just recognizing that as the book comes to us, we realize it's not as developed theologically. Its Christology is not as deep as, for instance, Colossians. This is not to say the book is lacking in Christian perspective. It pulsates with the teachings of Jesus. You could almost go so far as to say James reflects over and again that he lived with Jesus. That he, that he really knew what he taught and understand his, his instruction, understood his instruction. It reflects a deep understanding of the kind of countercultural life to which Christ calls his people. When Jesus came, he said, take up your cross and follow me. It's a one-way trip. He doesn't permit two masters. 
He says, come and follow me. James reflects in everyday, practical terms what that looks like. To be entirely devoted to Jesus Christ. To live a life that pulsates with the teachings of Christ, with the person of Christ. Now, he does not develop it as the Apostle Paul will, as we are a new man. There's a new identity in Christ. We've died with Him. We've risen with Him. We won't see any of that here in James. But the seminal concepts are there. That when Christ becomes my Savior, He becomes a gracious Master. He's the Lord. He's the Lord of every nuance of my life. And James reflects that. So see this, this godly pastor in Jerusalem, knowing that individuals have left Israel and they found themselves in a hostile world, and he talks to them about how to live for Christ. One of the reasons this book is so applicable to us is that its recipients face many of the same trials and temptations that we face, seeking to live as God's people in a world that is hostile to our faith. We live in a world that raises its fist against Christ as Lord. And and that world hits us. It hits us in a lot of different ways. This world has never been particularly hospitable as a home for Jews either. Any Jews living outside the land, even those living inside the land, it's not always been a hospitable place, but certainly those living outside the land, there's a long history of the suffering of Israelites living in other places. Those Jews in that time particularly made their living in commerce. But as cultural and ethnic outsiders put it together, they found themselves in an environment where the wealthy, the influential, and the powerful made their lives miserable. They find themselves poor and separated from the world in which they live. There was money to be made in the Roman world. There were people to exploit. Pride, position, power pleasure were highly valued in that world and moving then into that world as outsiders many of james readers suffered as oppressed emigrants with little wealth with little influence with little recourse against the power brokers who ran the world in which they lived they were not living in a place where there was protection from the government as such some very little according to our standards But there was an even larger problem. These individuals living outside the land in this hostile environment were enamored with the power, the wealth, the influence, and the self-promoting egoism of those who made their lives miserable. They wanted a piece of that action to exploit others, and to live according to these worldly principles. So on the one hand, suffering. And on the other hand, a strong temptation to grasp a share of that power. So here's James. He writes this letter. And he says, I want to point you to devotion to Christ in everything that you do. Steeped in the teachings and example of Jesus, he comes to his readers with direct speech that resembles a sermon. 
a sermon in text, so to speak. James does not work over all of the specifics. He expects us to do that, to read the right things in between the lines. He doesn't overwork the text. The book could easily be four or five times as long without any new topics. Just taking his time working through the specifics and the nuance of it. He's not overly worried about offending us. Not overly concerned about offending his readers. He puts it directly, straight up, and tells them the way that it is. And it is a message calling us to transformational Godward orientation in life. And in the passage that's before us today, we find three distinctive responses that must characterize us as the followers of Christ. Characteristics that we must pursue as the followers of Christ who have a Christianity that is integrated into everything that we do. So starting with the greeting in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, he sends greetings. James refers to himself as a servant. He's a servant of God. Isn't it interesting? As the half-brother of Christ, he is also a servant of Jesus Christ. It is a self-reference which is remarkably fitting to the theme of the letter, this theme of humility. And what a fitting way for our service to start out this morning with a call to humility in worship, a humility before the Lord. That's where James starts, and this will be a theme that runs through the book. I am a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. Writing to the twelve tribes, a reference to ethnic Israelites of the dispersion living outside the promised land. It's not to say no Gentiles would have read this book. It's just to say there aren't that many out there yet, perhaps at this point, or at least not that many among the contacts that James has. This letter will be moving around, perhaps copies of it to varying communities, and they will be stationed largely in synagogues in Israelite conclaves within the cities of the Greco-Roman world. So Gentiles certainly would have read this letter. It was a letter about Christ, about the Christian life. But it is directly addressed to his contacts, which are Jewish people living in these cities. So to them he addresses this word. And in verses 1 through 12, we find three characteristics of a spiritually mature perspective on life. The first is this. We rejoice in the opportunity of trials. We rejoice in the opportunity of trials. We see the countercultural shot right out of the gate. Verse 2 Count it all joy, which has the sense, count it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. They were meeting trials. And this is what a follower of Jesus does, James counsels. You fall into trials of all shapes and sizes, colors and textures in this fallen world. You, the readers of James, and you sitting here, don't we? All kinds. There's those trials that are just disappointments, or, or, or I should say irritations and frustrations, So, if we look at the lightest level. Bumper to bumper traffic, and you're late for an appointment. Just an irritation. That's one kind. The kitchen sink is leaking again. A friend borrowed your hoodie and is not returning it. I mean, just, just irritations, frustration. How do we relate to those frustrations? 
frustrated, irritated, or counting it pure joy. Then there's the disappointments. You really want to make that team, you really want to make that play, you really want to be part of that choir, you really want this. You try out, and the list is posted, and your name is missing. You didn't make it. The person you secretly hoped you might one day marry has grown disinterested in you and started to date someone else. Your grown child is making foolish decisions that grieve God's heart and grieve yours. Disappointments of varying levels, varying ways. How do we respond? Financial troubles. There's bills that are not being paid. It's concerning. You don't know where the money's going to come from. You sense that you might be in trouble. Pressure of duties. Just seems to be no time to fulfill. There's the physical trials. You learn that you have cancer. It's going to change the rest of your life. No day will ever be the same again. It's a major disappointment and difficulty. There's temptations to sin. The continual badgering of the flesh to do what we know God does not want us to do. I think that's included in the trials. Temptation. There's persecution. There's those who treat you as hateful when you're seeking to be loving. There's those who see wrong motivations when all you want to do is honor Christ. There's people in parts of this world that are being put in prison because they follow Jesus. That's a trial. And then there's death. A loved one has left a huge hole in your life. This world is filled with troubles of many kinds, and you have your own list of those troubles. And what is our world's response? How do people typically respond to such things? Of all the things that the media teaches us how to think, this is one they don't really get into. How do you respond to these trials? How do you go about it? You just give in to depression. Or self-pity or you mute the pain by turning to drugs or alcohol or materialism if i just keep buying things maybe the pain will go away you lash out in bitter anger you get into politics with an angry edge to get this fixed it won't happen again it won't happen to someone else you just deal with it the world says however you wish But here it is, for the followers of Christ, you experience a trial, some painful difficulty comes into your life, you wish it had never happened, you wish it would go away, but it won't. And here's what you do, you choose in reliance upon the Lord to consider the experience as pure joy. Not in itself but in what it can do. How is this possible? How is it rational to consider the experience of that trial pure joy? I hate trials. I'm tired of my heart being broken, of circumstances going against me. How can the choice to rejoice make any sense at all? Verse 3. Here's how. 4. We rejoice 
for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then you're able to let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's how. So James is not saying enjoy trials like they're fun. He's not calling us to merely endure them with a stoic resignation, a forced smile on our face. He is saying that we must learn to fully appreciate the power that trials have. Trials test the metal of our faith in God, probably here in the sense that they serve to strengthen that faith. Let's think right now, I ask you, think. What is the worst trial that you're facing right now? Might be hard to prioritize it, but just pick one. What's the worst thing you're facing right now? What's the thing, if you think about it, I wish this would go away and life would be so much better. What is that trial? Identify it. Suffering that trial has the potential to develop your trust in God. To encourage enduring perseverance in your faith. Then as your faith grows stronger, you make progress in becoming perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does that mean? Is that sinless perfection? The Greek word perfect commonly was used of maturity or a full functionality. Not of superhuman perfection. Something along those lines. I'm going to borrow here humor from a pastor and a comedian and put it together. All right, so this isn't my idea, but I'm going to do that. And I think it illustrates it well. You go to the gym and you're going to work out there and you see a strong, muscular young man. He has rippling muscles in places you don't have places. And you look at him and what do you say? Why are you here? You're done. You're already ripped. What on earth are you doing at the gym? It's over. Now, is it? He's not done, but he's perfect in the sense the Greek word is used here. He's not invincible, but at the moment... He is perfect and complete, lacking nothing, right where he stands. Never in this life do we reach a place where we no longer need to grow. This guy needs to continue to exercise, to maintain, but he's in a state right now of completeness, not perfection. He's not Superman. Bullets don't bounce off his chest, even though it looks like it. But he's at a place of maturity, of completeness, and you look at him and go, that guy could take anything on. That's a bit of the sense here. Not that we're perfect, not that we don't have to work any longer, not that trials no longer have any effect upon us, but God uses trials to mold us into solid believers with a mature faith that's capable of enduring whatever providence assigns to our path and doing so with a godly spirit. So an imperfect faith, an imperfect faith, is one that's going to face the next trial and going to lash out sinfully, respond with depression, discouragement, anger, bitterness, something like that. But through the trials, as we continue to handle them and continue to find God gracious and strong, our faith grows. It matures. 
we get to the place by His grace where in that moment we can stand perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials are used by God to mold us into solid believers. Trials are the weights that God uses to strengthen the muscle of faith. The chisel that He uses to mold our faith into something strong and enduring. When we adopt this perspective on life, we can honestly consider it pure joy to suffer trial. Now remember, Jesus... I said Jesus, I meant James. James, Jesus too, but James is not frolicking around in some fantasy land here. He's talking to people that were suffering some severe problems. They were being oppressed by others. His counsel to us here is based solidly on reality, not fantasy. And what is it? How can you say these things? Rejoice in the opportunity that trials bring to build faith. How can he say that? Number one, nothing can happen to you that God does not ordain and permit for your ultimate good. Nothing. The door in is guarded by none other than the all-powerful, all-loving God of the universe. No trial can touch you apart from His sovereign purpose. And once that trial has been permitted into the door, secondly, He will sovereignly utilize whatever trial He permits in your life for the growth of your faith. He's that big. He's that great. He'll use that trial, that difficulty, whether something small or something great, He'll use it to build faith until you meet Him. So the first characteristic of a mature perspective on life is that we rejoice in the opportunity of trials. Secondly, is that we seek skill for living from God alone. There again, how counterculture. We seek skill for living from God alone. Verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Wisdom... Ideally, we read today Proverbs chapter 2. That's wisdom, not smarts. But living life with moral and relational skill. Using what God has revealed and putting it into practice wisely. Now think of the context. They are living among the movers and shakers of this world. People of economic and political influence. Where do such people seek skill for living? They seek it in themselves. They seek it in collaboration with other power brokers in this world. There's a conversation about how you live skillfully. And it takes place at seminars and it's found in literature. And we keep telling ourselves how to live. But James says, if you lack skill for living, ask God. The wisdom God gives, His counsel for skillful living is typically counterintuitive to the world's way of thinking. But God gives this true wisdom liberally. He pours out His counsel, it says, without reproach. What does that mean? He doesn't chide you for asking Him again. Really? I gave you wisdom last time you asked. you got to be here again? Or look what you did with it last time. 
didn't go so well. What's wrong with you? That is not our God. As a loving father, he says, I want to give you wisdom. I want you. Our God wants us as his followers to live with skill. He longs for that to be the case. And so go to him. He'll give liberally. He will provide that skill. It may not come as fast as you want. It may not come in the form you want. It may not come with the counsel you're hoping for. But he'll give it. With no chiding, but with grace. But, verse 6, there's a caution. Let him ask in faith with no doubting For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James shifts from how God gives wisdom to how we must ask for it. How God gives liberally to how we must ask. The doubting to which James refers is not intellectual doubts. He's not talking about uh, uh, just I'm not sure that God will give it or I'm not sure what to think here. He's talking about a fundamental conflict of loyalties. That's what's key here. This person is like a wave of the sea shifting here and there, coming at the shore from this angle. and Whoop, no, now it's coming to the shore at a different angle. It's It's rising it's falling it's churning it's heaving you can't really nail it down this picture of instability describes a person who shifts back and forth between god's wisdom and the world's wisdom this is dan miller in junior high back and forth back and forth shifting who are my people where am i at what do i believe what do i listen to maybe it's over here no maybe it's what god's saying back and forth unstable James isn't saying God will stand back and ignore you. But he's saying you can't play both sides. One day, praying on the poor and the weak. One day, trying to join the power brokers of your world. And the next day, treating them with compassion. Because that's God's counsel. This day, loving power and money and acting accordingly, and the next day, seeking to be generous and selfless. This day, tapping into the sensuality of the world and its ways, and the next day, seeking purity in Christ. That's not the way to get skill in living. You're like a wave of the sea that can't be defined, shifting, heaving, churning, moving. You're not going to get much from God. You're not going to get anything from God, he says, in very stark terms. Now, we have to nuance that rightly. But he warns that that the kind of double-mindedness that listens to God with one ear and listens to the worldly wisdom with the other ear, such double-mindedness asks a host of gods to grant skill for living, not caring which God answers as long as there's a response that's forthcoming. Get this, says James. Those who do not devotedly integrate their lives with the wisdom and counsel of God can be sure that God is not going to grant skill for living. Once again, we come down to the either or, black or white. Either he's your master, or this world is your master. You can't 
have it both ways. You can't have a foot in both places. You've got to choose. A a life devotedly integrated with the wisdom of God is how His people seek to live. And ironically, those who least sense their need for that skill typically display the greatest evidence of that need. So we ask ourselves, it's so practical, do I need skill for living? Do you? Of course we do. So I ask very simply, you sense the need, are you praying for it? Are you asking God to give it? So there's the devotion part, I listen only to God. And that doesn't mean we don't hear ideas from the world and we can't learn from a science magazine or something like that or a leadership idea from some unbeliever. But what it's saying is my my devotion, my center, my counsel comes from God. That's one issue. But the second is, do you ask for it? Do you pray about it? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. How simple it is. But have you asked God to give you skill and discernment by which to live for His glory? When God reveals in His Word how you are to live your life, are you willing to follow that Word even if it will make you poorer? Are you willing to follow that Word if it will make you less attractive to others? Are you willing to follow that Word if it will make you less successful? and renowned, less popular. The mature believer seeks with unwavering loyalty to ground his life in the wisdom of God. And he asks for it. Maybe there's just a simple step and change that could be made there in your life, in all of our lives, in mine, that we get up tomorrow morning and every day for the rest of our lives and we ask God for wisdom. How often do we get up and go after life all in our own strength, in our own, depending upon ourselves, and never stop to say, God, make me skillful today. Allow me to be wise in my relationship with my work, with my play, with other people around me. Ask God. So a mature perspective on life is characterized by choosing to rejoice in the opportunity of trials and seeking skill for living from God alone with utter devotion. The third characteristic we find in verse 9 is that, here it is, we prize humility. We prize humility. We value humility. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. That's counterintuitive. The lowly brother. This is the believer who is poor, who lacks power, who is unimportant, not influential in this world. When we occupy a humble position, we should learn to rejoice in our high status in God's eyes. The most impoverished, the least influential, that knows God as Father is eternally rich. Our Father is the King of kings and Lord of lords with whom we will live forever and ever. Exalt 
in your humiliation, in your state of lowness. God gives grace to the humble. He loves the weak. He blesses the despised of this world. Who found in Jesus a sort of support and goodwill? Was it not the sick? Was it not the poor? Was it not the troubled? Was it not the despised that Jesus reached out to? If you're in that spot, rejoice, exult. It's a high position. It's a high calling. There's no shame in it. There might be shame in it if the reason that you're there is because of your sinful life and things that you've done in violation of God's purposes. All that understood. The way this world looks at and despises the weak and the poor, that's not you. Exalt in your low position. Don't be ashamed about it at all. And the rich... Whoever they are, they are to be rejoicing in their what? What do rich people celebrate? Their wealth, their importance, their significance. You are to rejoice and to celebrate your humiliation. What does he mean by that? How are the rich humiliated? Verse 10, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So I'm I'm impoverished, I'm despised, I'm small, I exult in knowing God, I exult in His love for me, but I'm wealthy, influential, and strong... What I'm to do is to recognize I'm no better than the grass of the field. I'm just, I'll die, I'll pass away. I'm not that important. I'm a creature made in the image of God, of course, but just like the flower falls and its beauty perishes, so will I in my pursuits. The rich should realize how temporal and fragile their lives are. Like the grass in the blazing sun, we die. Now, who are these rich? There is much debate on that. I think within the context of the book, it's my understanding that they're primarily unbelievers who oppress James' readers. There's a scathing rebuke to them in chapter 5. So the rich who should rejoice in their humiliation because they're just like the grass of the field passing away. They're not special in the universe. Those rich are the people who largely are oppressing James's readers. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's a statement to the wealthy and to the power brokers that are making life miserable for people, but it's also a statement to those who are being oppressed. Remember that this one who seems so important really is not. Not in God's eyes. Having said that, I think there's a principle here certainly for any believers reading the book who would have been wealthy. A warning there to them. Remembering that the readers seem to be bending that way. To want to take on the world's perspective and way of thinking of things. And so there would be a warning there to any wealthy believer. Though I think primarily the context would point to one who is an oppressor. Be warned, James says. Be reminded of your humble position. I think here of the words of the apostle to the Gentiles. How fitting they are. 
Paul to the Corinthians. Here it is. This is the essence of it. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I have wealth, I boast in Him. I have no wealth, I boast in Him. Not in self. Boasting in the right sense. Verse 12, we find, uh, connects to what precedes and it also connects to what follows. It is uh, difficult to place within this context, but there's connectors in it to what it precedes and connectors in it to the passage to follow. We won't spend much time on it here, but just to bookend the call at the beginning of this section, he says, Blessed then is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. From the world's perspective, from the perspective of the power brokers of this age, what James has spoken, let's get it straight, this is utter nonsense. This is absolute insanity. On any level that you measure it within the context of the world in which we live, those who face trials are fill in the blank. They're unlucky. They should make desperate attempts to reverse their luck. They should dull the pain with chemicals or channel their anger to retaliate against those who harm them or something of the sort. But there won't be many people hanging around to give you that counsel. Things go against you. You suffer trials. They're gone. James says, listen, that's not who we are. We're the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns sovereignly from heaven's throne. There is no trial that makes Jesus sweat. We can rejoice because of our assurance that there are no unlucky random events in this world. God, not chance, runs the universe. And so armed with this perspective, we consider it pure joy to face trials because our Heavenly Father has assured us that He will build our faith through those trials. So the irritations, the frustrations, the disappointments, the suffering, we need to learn the strategy to see that as God's child. To know there's a sovereign Lord behind that trial. And He's using it to build my faith. Jesus is not in the business of making your life simple. Think of what He's doing in His construction project. Jesus is fitting you for glory. 
He's getting you to be ready to enter into His presence. So when we see trials, we are taught to concentrate, to think, to choose, to count it as pure joy. Whatever it is. And it's only possible because Jesus suffered for us to bring us to God. He suffered the ultimate pain. Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And so a genuine Christian theology of life is that we count it pure joy to see our faith being developed. I don't think like that naturally. I need His counsel. I need His help. May we take it to heart. And with blazing hope, never, ever despair. But Jesus came into this world. How? The Christ that we honor, the Lord that we celebrate and worship says, of Him it is said, though rich, for our sakes He became poor that through His poverty we might be eternally enriched. He did not cling to the splendor of heaven, but our Savior humbled Himself and took on flesh and became obedient unto death, the death of a cross. Philippians 2. So integration of life with the incarnation, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ looks radically different than the world in which we live We rejoice in the opportunity of trials to build our faith. We listen to the counsel of God alone in utter devotion for skill and living. And we rejoice. We celebrate humility. That's Jesus' people. That's our calling. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the rebuke of this passage. I thank you that James is so pointed. I pray that these words of counsel would stir our hearts to faith and trust in you and to live a life that is wholly devoted to Christ and is integrated with the concept of who Jesus is in his reigning power as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray for anyone who is rudderless today, whose life is not grounded in Christ, crucified and risen, and I pray that you would show them the need to gain salvation and wisdom in Christ. He is to us our wisdom, and in this we rest and thank you. I pray that you draw each one of us to accomplish here in responding to the words of God all that you desire for us this day. Through Christ we pray. Amen.